Welcome to your daily five minutes of faith. This is Bonefire episode 18, Genesis chapters 1 to 11. I'm Dr. Kevin T. Goddard. In this episode, I will focus in on the first section of Genesis chapters 1 to 11. In the last episode, we introduced Genesis as the only source of history for the people of Israel. The primary takeaway is God providing his people a description of who he is and his relationship to mankind. As Genesis's name alludes, this book lays the theological foundation for God's threefold promises to his image bearers, man and woman. First, God blesses humans with procreation and dominion over the earth. Second, God promises that he will ultimately defeat mankind's enemy, Satan. Third, God reveals he will fulfill his plan through the offspring of Abraham's seed. This seed is singular and can be traced through the rest of the Old Testament manifesting in the form of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. The story that unfolds is God's progressive revelation to his people, who he is, and his steadfast love and faithfulness, despite his people constantly being unfaithful over and over again. This allows the necessity of salvation by God himself through a divine Savior to shine brightly in a world that has been broken by man's sinful, selfish nature. Remember in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, Paul writes, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Genesis is the foundation for man to understand God, the world given to mankind, and the rest of scripture that creates a cohesive, unified revelation of history going back to the very beginning of time itself. Everything necessary to live a godly life is presented in scripture, yet God gave us this wonderful world to explore and care for. In Genesis, God blesses man and tells mankind to take dominion over the earth. Earth is man's responsibility. In chapters 1 through 11, God creates a path of redemption from the fall of Adam by disobeying God's only command for him. This path can be traced in two lines, one of blessing, the other of curse, since sin always has consequences and God will still remain steadfast in his promises. While mankind slips further and further into evil after the fall, God preserves hope in the Adamic line of Seth in chapter 5, Noah in chapter 9, and finally in Abraham's faith in God from which God promises a redeemer to restore mankind's relationship with God. In response to sin, God curses the serpent and the soil in chapter 3, Cain for killing his brother Abel in chapter 4, and then the whole earth in chapter 8 for the continual wickedness of society. After the flood, where God preserves his blessing by saving Noah and his sons to continue the Adamic line to Abraham, Noah curses Canaan for wicked behavior. In short order, mankind is once again up to his wicked ways and begins building the Tower of Babel as a testament to mankind's greatness, spitting in the face of God's sovereignty. And chapter 11 ends with God diversifying language and culture to scatter mankind across the face of the earth. Two sections of genealogy then take us to Abram, soon to become Abraham in chapter 12. Chapter 12 begins with God giving a five-fold blessing of promise and hope to Abraham that counters the five curses put upon mankind up to this point. 
Before we get too focused in on a verse-by-verse exposition of Genesis, let's confront some very important theological issues to be wrestled with in Genesis. This is barely scratching the surface of these issues, but let's do our best. First, God created heaven and earth in six literal days. The word yom, meaning day in Hebrew, stands for a 24-hour period. The verses proclaim, there was evening and there was morning, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth day. This is pretty straightforward. At the same time, we know that time and space are intertwined and can compress and flex, so we cannot know exactly what this time period meant to God. Other theories include the day-age theory, where each day represents a geological time. This doesn't make sense because plants couldn't have survived in age 3 without the sun until age 4, or pollinating insects until age 5. The revolution day theory is that God just revealed his creating power through a dream or vision to Moses that was only representative of what he really did. This has the problem of redemption from the fall being meaningless if the events are not as recorded and the Sabbath being holy and blessed is pointless. There are more theories, but they get even more complex with even more holes. Second, there had to be a literal Adam and Eve who fell from grace. If not, there is no need for a Savior, and Jesus Christ would have been a pointless victor over nothing rather than the original sin passed down through mankind. There would be no one who took the punishment for our sins against God, and there is no hope for our salvation from hell. Darwin invented evolution to prove there was no God. He stated that as his objective when he set out. Not very scientific. Plus, scientists now admit that Darwin would never have come to his theory if he had possessed the scientific instruments we have now. Too many biological components in plants and animals could not have evolved from parts. They had to be complete from the beginning to function. The fossil record doesn't even support evolution. There are no transitional fossils. There are different life forms, but no fossils of the process that links them together. Even the fossils that are often used to draw various stages of man are actually handfuls of bone fragments and teeth instead of complete skeletons evolutionists would have you believe they found. Third, the cosmos is too finely tuned to have happened by chance. More and more scientists are beginning to admit there is intelligent design woven into life, primarily the four dimensions of DNA that are too astronomically complex and perfect to have evolved. One other point of contention in Genesis is the extent extent of the flood that wiped out the earth. There are arguments for a worldwide flood, as literally described, or a localized flood that was regional and used the Hebrew word eretz that can mean globe, land, or geographic area. I tend to go with the whole earth interpretation simply because of the cataclysmic events described. God wiped the earth clean back to the watery chaos of creation when he released all of the water contained in the soil, the water table, and the rock beneath the crust of the earth. Even the highest mountain was covered with water, and that doesn't make sense globally if the flood was regional. Waves would have ripped the continents apart and rearranged them, which could account for the evidence of Pangaea. 
Waves would have deposited rock sediment and the carcasses of animals in layers buried under unfathomable weight and pressure instantly, which would have been necessary to create fossils in the numbers and strata we see unearthed today, often in odd places such as sea life in the middle of desert and the same species found in fossil beds around the entire world. Finally, Noah and his family were on the ark for almost 18 months with two of every kind of animal. Notice the text doesn't say two of every animal, but two of every kind. If God could then adapt every species to its environment from one prototype kept on the ark, then only a couple thousand pairs of land animals would have needed to be loaded onto the ark. A set of feline animals could have adapted into lions, tigers, and house cats over the next few thousand years, for example. In the next episode, we will focus into the first few cha- uh, the first few chapters in more detail, and then finally get to Genesis one one.